Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. We need to grab data. We need to harness it consistently. We need to store it securely. We need to figure out ways of measuring it, how to scale it, how to position it right for users. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Happy Thursday, Solar Warriors! Welcome back. Wow, what an amazing time to be alive. I hope that you're feeling the energy this week as I am and I'm pumped to bring you another amazing entrepreneur's journey. He's been building a business for more than 15 years, serving the renewables industry and reducing risk for his clients. Today's entrepreneur, Andrew Eisenberg, has been working with software since high school, running command line prompts on an Apple IIc. He built his company as a side project, working nights and weekends during college, and eventually convinced some college buddies to help him expand the products. Today, his company, Green IT Energy Applications, provides a comprehensive suite of products that help renewable energy portfolio owners mitigate risk, analyze data, and manage portfolios of assets around the world. Andrew and I dig into his early days building software for GE's wind portfolio and how he turned that project into a full-blown business, developing what Andrew dubs an operating system for renewables. This is another conversation that I got a ton of value from in just the pre-interview. So if you're a member of our Suncast Guild, please keep an eye out for some bonus exclusive material in the coming days. And if you're unfamiliar with the Guild, you can learn more at mysuncast.com forward slash member. Remember, you can always find the resources and learn more about today's guests and recommendations, as well as more than 200 and 29 other founder stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com. Oh, and while you're there, we're going to be hosting our first Ask Me Anything of the Year for our tribe members with a recent guest, Jeff Ressler of Clean Power Research. So do make sure that you're subscribed to our email newsletter so you'll get the details for that. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, today we are going to have a very interesting conversation with someone who's had the privilege not only of being in the renewables industry writ large, but migrating from wind to solar and transitioning, transferring knowledge from the skill set he had developed, just not just through college, but through childhood into uh, a career in a business that he still runs to this day. Today we have Andrew Eisenberg of Green IT Energy Applications. He's the CEO and founder, and for more than 15 years, he's been involved in designing, engineering, and deploying software solutions to benefit the renewable energy industry. Andrew, it is a pleasure to have you on Suncast today. Thanks, Nico. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, and hat tip to Jonathan Pfeffer, who is on your team and is a Suncast listener for recommending that we have Andrew on the show. As I've gotten to know Andrew, 
it definitely, I, I expect that this is going to be one of those episodes that folks can really sink into and uh, not just learn how someone can navigate the fluctuations uh, in our energy transition, but also the fluctuations in uh, building a career. You've been more or less uh, in, in control, I will say, for the better part of, of adulthood. Now, in our previous conversations, I came to get the sense that uh, you are a self-proclaimed nerd. Has that always been the case for you? I'm proud to identify as a nerd. Starting all the way back in elementary school, my interests and proclivities tended to revolve around nerdy things. I had terrible penmanship. It, it was really bad. So when the rest of the class started to learn cursive, I was pulled aside and directed to a terminal instead. I suppose if uh, I learned to type, uh, my teachers would be able to read and review my homework. But essentially that, that beginning, working on a terminal in the, in the third grade was a, was a a really formative experience. My inner nerd loved it. I was I was hooked on my Apple IIc. I was in the math club. I was in the chess club. Yeah, that's amazing. I remember you said that you were the youngest president ever of the AV club. Was that in high school? Yeah, yeah, that's right. In, in my freshman year, there was turmoil in the uh, elected AV club administration, and I was in the right place at the right time. I forget what the scandal was. Maybe it was something about hall passes. I, I, I don't know. But my ambition met the opportunity, and I assumed the reins of the nerddom of uh, Monroe Woodbury High School AV Club. In addition to the standard fare of rolling TVs down to classrooms and setting overhead projectors, I was really hooked on the analog video editing station and also servicing the computer lab. It, it was a lot of fun. I love it. Yeah, you were um, early on hanging out with the cool kids. And you and I are similar age. So at that time, the high school culture doesn't necessarily warrant that those kids are the cool kids, but history has proven otherwise. It seems to me, though, most of the folks like you that I knew who were both involved in things like the AV club uh, or getting involved at an early age, learning how to work an Apple to see, they tend to be people that, broadly speaking, want to build things. Is that a category that you feel like you fall into? Yeah, definitely. But... Initially, I wasn't very good at building things. Rather, I excelled at taking them apart. This drove my parents nuts, but I really enjoyed disassembling our household electronics to see how they worked, how they were assembled, what their fundamental bits were. I got started on my Apple IIc. I was exposed to BASIC and other technologies. I could see the outcome, but I was really fascinated with how it actually worked, how to put it together. So taking things apart or breaking them, that, that was fun for me. It was a bit of a mess, but I, I got to see how, how things were, were assembled. Yeah. Do you remember the first time that you used a computer that you'd really come to understand to solve a problem in the world? To solve a problem? Um, it's, it's a bit of a stretch. Goofing around in the fifth grade? Yeah, I, I definitely remember that. I saw the problem getting a rise out of my teachers and entertaining my classmates. I remember one day we had a, a sub uh, in the computer lab, and his objective was to teach us basic loops. But I got a hold of his terminal and changed this program to display silly text. And yeah, I, I was good at goofing around. And it took me many years to actually do something meaningful or useful. But from an early age, I saw technology as an outlet, a gateway for learning, yes, creativity, expression. Yeah. So... You're a child of the 80s and 90s. Uh, as you were growing up, were your parents role models for you in some way? What, what were they engaged in? My father was involved in finance in a variety of industries, and including, really importantly, later on, in power. And my mother ran her own business, and they both worked really hard and instilled in, in 
me and my, my brother and sister, a really strong work ethic. They pushed us hard. Um, although I was a lazy and goofy kid, their, their passion and, and persistence was fundamental and, and truly inspiring for me. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, you mentioned persistence and learning uh, a new language in many ways uh, as we grew into this internet age, uh, the language that undergirds and supports not only computers, but the internet requires persistence and it requires an open mind. You know, I know I know plenty of friends who had an Apple IIc and, and other devices in their home didn't grow up to become a software developer. So how do you turn an interest in computers and I'll say in art, because you got a BFA in art, into a career that spans you know more than a decade of developing software to solve problems. Yeah, that that's right. I did my BFA in a digital design program. It was um, front end design, how to make data useful, how to make information readable. Um, and while in undergrad, I, I worked at night to, to support myself, and I had I had some rude tech skills. But uh, I started initially in print and mechanical design. Uh, and then the late 90s, that turned itself into web technologies. So during the day, I had school. And at night, I, I surfed Craigslist for opportunities and started to develop some professional skills. I had a small studio. I was in Back Bay, Boston. And I was able to bring in enough work for myself. Um, and then that snowballed into too much work. And that, that was interesting. So I, I brought in some contractor friends, others that uh, uh, lived by or doing similar, had similar skills. And then I um, uh, networked uh, others uh, via Craigslist uh, to find additional support and uh, essentially assembled a small team. And this was a really good learning experience. Um, I learned about scaling. I learned about how to communicate and how to deliver on projects. But I, I still had my, my academic work. I was still in school during the days and I had other priorities, uh, things that I thought were important in my 20s at least. And uh, I continued this for a couple of years. Uh, initially, the work was uh, all over the place. I was, uh, you know, there, there really wasn't a direction. Um, what can we do well? Uh, what was interesting? What's a neat problem? Okay, that, that's, 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 that's a good job for us. We, we had like the, the methodology of just working and breaking it until you fix it and take it apart enough times to really understand how to build it. And it was it, it was good. It was learning. We, we were a small shop, though. There were no rules. We had uh, an opportunity to try things out without much consequence as long as we delivered on time and on budget. And um, again, at that point, platform and technology agnostic. But we started to develop some skills and develop a little reputation for working with time series data. In Boston at that time, the dominant industry was biotech and pharma, and we were exposed to one second, one minute, five minute, 10 minute data from medical studies. And this became something that we we got good at. Um, the industry certainly wasn't exciting, but the volume of data was interesting and, and cool. We still had to deal with the front end, and that, that was an interesting challenge. It's a, a lot of data and figuring out how to slice it and uh, present it in a way that a, a user would be able to work with it and, and they'd be able to look at it and, and make sense out of it. Yeah, and this was, uh, as I recall, somewhere you know, five, six years after you'd started the company. Do you recall, how did that contract come to be, this time series study in Boston? I had a friend who ran the IT team at a, at a farmer shop and they needed an app developed. It was something we were able to handle at night. It, it fit the schedule. It, it kind of fit our skill set. Uh, we did a good job. 
And uh, after we delivered, they sent us another similar job and we started to get better at it. My primary interest, of course, was my BFA. It was stimulating, a great creative outlet. However, from a professional perspective, this was the beginning. I was learning scale and how to deal with customers, how to manage source code and, and admin matters. So I have a, a bit of a two-part question here. I was going to jump into kind of how you got into clean energy, but the last thing you said actually intrigues me. Were you actively seeking input from others, perhaps your father, perhaps uh, mentors from school uh, or, or even clients to help you uh, along that pathway? Or was this stuff that you just mold over and as an entrepreneur, you want to solve not only everyone else's problems, but your own? That, this is that process of, as you said, refining and finding your groove. I suppose I want to say that I was a lone wolf, but it's it's not true. I understood early on that many brains is better than one. A flat structure yields more in a creative process. Boston was a hub of technology, for sure. And through various networks, I was connecting with lots of different people, working on similar-ish problems, whether academic or professional. Uh, but of course, I was still limited to my night. So my primary resource at that time was my small group that I was working with. Well, tell me about the first exposure that you had, or maybe your first foray into developing products for the clean energy sector, how you knew that this was where you began to focus these skills that your team was developing. It started as I finished school. My daytime opened up. I was in my mid-20s looking for the right opportunity to apply myself, and uh, I was in the right place at the right time when another time series data challenge came our way. And this time it was a different industry. It wasn't biotech or pharma. It was renewables, and in that it was utility-scale wind. There was a preventative maintenance program. They were having trouble performing. There were data issues at a facility, and this was great. We had a lot of presumptions of how it would work. We thought the data would flow a certain way, and we were wrong about that. We thought the UI should be assembled in a certain way, and we were wrong about that as well. These challenges opened up the door um, with technology possibilities. Um, I want to highlight that um, I became a vegetarian at 16. I've always been mindful of my footprint. I've aligned with various eco-concerns. And as I exited my BFA, I had thought that as long as I was creatively stimulated, that I would be satisfied with whatever industry my work took me in. However, the opportunity in renewables where I could scratch my creative itch and build something useful and support an industry that, that, cared, that I cared about was awesome. Um, I became obsessed. It was all I could think about, all I could talk about. It took over all aspects of my life. Well, Andrew, one of the things that I definitely recall uh, about your history that tracks pretty well with mine is a broader influence of your dad and his work on the way that you developed your career than, uh, than might be sort of visible at first on the surface. Would you share with me the connection of the work that your dad was doing in the power industry and uh, your eventual transition into the wind power business? Yeah, the uh, story begins with the collapse of Enron. It's a pivotal moment in, in history that shaped the energy industry in general, and especially wind. Enron had owned a portfolio, uh, amongst a lot of other things, and when they dissolved, it changed hands. Due to their mismanagement, the assets were a mess. Wind was buzzing at that time, um, and the portfolio went to GEFS, and they needed somebody to manage it. And that opportunity found its way to my father and his firm. At this point in his career, he had been specializing in power 
um, and was well positioned to step in and steward the assets. Uh, they were asset managing the small portfolio in the Midwest, and the portfolio's issues were were real. On the uh, technical side, the SCADA data was was the SCADA system itself was unstable, and it lacked any documentation or support. There was no maintenance going on in that system at all. There was a, a lot of industry teething issues going on, um, uh, and then beyond that, from like an engineering perspective, there were uh, uh, these were lattice towers, so it was causing a lot of vibrations, and uh, this caused damage to a variety of things. There was physical damage that was evident on the blades, the nacelle, um, and via my father's AM role, we were introduced into the technical side of uh, utility scale wind. And what did you find as you started to uncover these issues you mentioned with the SCADA systems in particular? You know, how long did that contract last? How did the idea evolve for you that this could be something that you would transition your entire team towards? So our initial engagement was focused on documenting the issue um, and building a database to uh, present it to a, an end user so they can work their way through blade by blade to uh, catalog and determine the extent of the issues. On top of that, we overlaid operational data. We were able to source that from the SCADA system. And then uh, one layer on top of another, you're looking at the damage and you're able to understand the impact on production. There was no tool available to do this, so we we put it together. And this started as a pilot. There was 30 turbines at first. Uh, it was spread between two sites. We did the uh, the documentation. We built the database. There's an interactive form. We interacted with uh, an engineering firm to rank the damage, um, and it had this mush of an interface to digest it. Um, it was successful. Uh, in the second year, we renewed um, and we did the entire fleet. Um, uh, this was uh, hundreds and hundreds of turbines and thousands of blades. And um, it was uh, a really good means to get a sense of the extent of the issue. And in year three, the mitigation program was in place um, and we validated it. Uh, there was uh, some new damage that was discovered. We worked that through the system as well, but we evolved the software side of it to really track the validation and the maintenance effort that went on as well. What we learned was really important. The software that we built combined the data and brought it together in one place. And and this was uh, an aha, eureka moment. This might be an opportunity if we can combine data into a, into a workspace and combine a lot of data and connect users and stakeholders and, and those with important perspectives and those in management and give them a tool set that they can dig into as opposed to just a stale report. This is not just a, uh, a one-off PDF, but it's, a, it's an environment that, uh, that really does enable deeper inspection. This, this was the real opportunity. This was the problem that we were really solving. Yeah, it's really interesting. I remember that this is when I was jumping into the solar industry, 2006, seven, eight timeframe, also headed into global financial crisis as we think about the meta economics of what's happening in the, in the global economy. You have this as a project, not the entire business. At what point did you decide, okay, we've now got this the web app of sorts. We're helping parse data and, and give some uh, intellectual improvement to the ability for these large wind companies to understand better what's happening in their portfolios. How do you take that and then move forward into developing a product and becoming uh, what many would uh, regard as one of the premier software companies servicing 
the asset side of, of wind. This initial three-year program offered us so many insights. We learned so much. The, the preventative maintenance uh, and the software was great, but it also enabled us to learn about the industry and, and see the other problems. Um, we had that unstable SCADA system, and we worked to build a redundant architecture, and that, that, that was a fun project. Uh, we also worked with the SCADA data itself. We, we observed a quality that we called Swiss cheese. It was just there were holes and gaps everywhere and just in odd shapes and sizes. And we had to develop a tool that would help us analyze and kind of isolate the problem and then ultimately to fill in those gaps. Uh, and in the third year, we were exposed to what was uh, effectively a back office activity in managing the landowners. It was 2007, and we built our first landowner payment tool. It was a, a big calculator for royalty payments. Uh, we had the SCADA data, and, but we also ingested the landowner agreements. And put that together, we were able to calculate and, and understand and schedule all of the landowner obligations. These one-off opportunities, uh, along with the recurring blade program, open us up to everything. Stitching them together uh, and combining what we were seeing as disparate processes, this was going to be useful to ownership. Full perspective, though, um, we were still a really small tech shop. We'd built some cool things, but uh, I was still very young. Uh, I had limited personal responsibilities. I'm single. I'm still living in Boston. I'm working with a couple contractors. It was a really exciting time, and I was obsessed with tech and renewables, and I had uh, some uh, delusional confidence as well, and that was uh, I determined it was the right time to, to go to market. So with some poor prep and a lot of ambition, we started the Green IT Adventure. Um, initially, we targeted a conference. It was a CanWea event in Vancouver. And uh, very quickly, we hacked together what effectively was vaporware that emulated what our software platform could be. Um, important moment here. We learned about the value of preparation, uh, needing to engineer more, <laughs> and learned about the value of presentation as well. Um, I've recently been surprised, though. I was uh, digging through some old boxes, and I found uh, some of our initial marketing material from that conference. Um, and what we were describing there, and I got to say that the writing was, was quite poor, but what we were describing, uh, a platform that consolidates data into a life cycle of, of tools, that's... That crude messaging is still what we're doing today. That approach um, to, to a platform is what became Green IT's operating system for renewables. Again, it was a hack, um, but I was surprised to see what uh, that we were that we were on the path uh, way, way, way back then. And as I recall, you actually began to get uh, market uh, acceptance of the idea that this is something that could be useful. This operating system that would help sort of pull together various disparate parts of data within the overall development of solar projects and management of solar projects. This must have gotten you in front of some of the large developers. What, as you're starting to build that business thesis and commercialization process, took longer than you expected? It was really hard to figure out what we did best and, and how to scale that. Everything was a science project. It was an experiment. And if we could stay up all night for a couple of weeks, we, we would build something. What we weren't doing, though, was slowing down and building it right. Uh, we weren't thinking about the user or anticipating the user completely. We weren't building with elasticity in mind. And we, we certainly weren't refining things. I, I, again, as a child, I was good at taking things apart. But building them takes time. What we needed to do in addition to technology was figure out how to build the business. 
that's people and internal resources and how to develop the team and outreach, how to develop standards. We were young and lucky and fortunately found some initial commercial success and had to learn how to grow up. Well, as the philosopher Seneca says, luck is what happens in preparation meets opportunity. So uh, I, one of the things that I've been able to uh, have the vantage uh, and advantage, the vantage point of seeing are the number of entrepreneurs that I speak with who will describe that inflection moment, as you said, a pivotal moment in the company as, in some cases, luck. When, you know, really unpacking the story, which you've done for us for the last uh, few moments here, helps us to see deep level of preparation that's required um, both internally to understand yourself and what you want to put in the world and, and externally what your company is capable of or what your team or your, your capabilities are. You know, it cultivates this moment where luck is able to be recognized uh, or opportunity is able to be recognized and manifest itself as luck, perhaps. As an entrepreneur, you face a number of challenges uh, every single day. I wonder if there might be one or two things that for you over the course of 10 plus, almost 15 years of running your own business, you would categorize as maybe your number one headache or the things that cause you the most consternation. Luck has been important, but I always try to meet that with working hard. This is a big lesson for my parents. I'm uh, I'm persistent and probably a bit stubborn too, and this is this has been critical to my success and the success of the business. We've experienced lots of headaches over the years, and they've changed. Initially, it was patience; I needed to slow down, um, and then it was scaling: how to build the business and working with people, building a team, and working with customers and stakeholders. My BFA prepared me for challenges of design and presentation, but I didn't have an MBA and I had lots of growing pains learning how to run the business. Now the, the headache is just finding balance. I, I have a family, a young family. It's really important to me. I have my uh, obligations, my commitments with my business, and I also need to find time for myself. How to balance all of that is, is really challenging. Still broadly, in the business, we're dealing with headaches of scale and product development and markets, but we have a team that's working on that, and we're in a good position to take those on. Hey, Warrior, I bet you're already aware of CPS America's dominance in CNI with over 30% market share. But did you realize that they also shipped 500 megawatts of utility scale 1500 volt inverters in 2019? Their unique design flexibility makes them the only company with the ability to eliminate DC combiners in the field. And their DC to medium voltage balance of system bundle allows for as much as 40% reduction in costs. But wait, there's more. With string inverters increasingly used in utility applications, CPS is infusing smart tech innovations to drive down costs along the value chain from DC generation to AC delivery. If you'd like to find out what other cost stack reduction CPS can bring to your CNI and utility projects, head to mysuncast.com forward slash CPS. I appreciate that perspective. You mentioned that, you know, in your 30s, which wasn't, uh, hasn't been all that long ago, early 30s, uh, with the BFA, not the MBA, you needed to learn how to operate the business. I find that this is not an all too foreign situation or concept for many folks who migrate from maybe environmental policy or engineering, uh, for example, into the clean energy business. What, especially as a lone wolf self-proclaimed, 
helped you, what helped you gain perspective on how to operate the business properly? Was it input from others and mentors, books, etc.? How did you navigate that, especially while, you know, trying to begin a family and running a successful business? It hasn't been smooth. There's been a lot of trial and error. Uh, I follow a motto. It's a quote, really, by Tom Kelly. It, it goes, uh, fail early, fail often, and succeed sooner. And that's it. Failure is good. It's an opportunity to learn. I started um, this adventure early. I, I didn't have a lot of responsibility and could dedicate a lot of my time. That's time to bump my head. It's time to fall down and then time to get up again. Uh, of course, it's not just me. Uh, there's been a lot of patience from my friends, from my family, from my coworkers. Um, I have the mentorship and guidance from my family as well. Um, and I have had uh, really great luck in working with some really talented individuals. I love that story and how uh, it's it's so true and it resonates very, uh, very closely with many of the uh, entrepreneurs that we've had on the show. What turned out better than you expected in all of this? Many things, really. Um, the industry, uh, the industry has grown so much and continues to grow uh, despite the changing uh, uh, financial climate. The industry is is, is still going, um, but the business itself has has blossomed. Uh, tech was always first, but building the business and the team was a major effort. Now we're not done; we're far from it, but we've got a pretty good understanding of who we are at this point. We have standards. We've uh, uh, have some stability, and and I'm, I'm I'm really humbled by the team's commitment and and proud of the relationships that we've developed. What's really surprised me, though, is that the challenges have continued. There was never an expectation that we would have to do continuous development, um, but the problems haven't stopped, and the platform has continued to need to scale. The concept of being a full lifecycle provider, of uh, actually delivering on an operating system, has forced us to continue and to stay course in active development. Yeah, well, let's talk about that platform and how it has grown to be what you and others in the industry have dubbed the operating system for renewables. You know, around the time that we're discussing here, and we still are, you know, 10 years from uh, the, you know, earlier in our timeline, exploring how this company has grown, you had been at the time servicing many of the large developers in the wind industry. Uh, as we all know, historically, around 08, 09, the production tax credit, you know, sort of the wind version of our solar ITC, started to run up against the same challenges we're facing now with the ITC. That is, there was less uh, support for it in Congress. There uh, were other competing interests for, for subsidies. And we started to see the now boom in the solar industry. How did you and your team identify and make the transition over to the solar space? And you know, what sort of competition did you find in, in, that, in the industry as you migrated over? So what differentiated you guys from the incumbents, et cetera? As solar took off, um, we found ourselves entrenched, maybe stubbornly so, in, in wind. Uh, we saw it in the rearview mirror, kept a watchful eye on it, and saw its rapid growth and all the new technologies. But initially, we couldn't figure out how to do it. And then, um, uh-oh, the bottom fell out. And this was a painful pivot for us. Um, we were very motivated at that point to make it happen. And um, to, as a group, though, we weren't really afraid of developing quickly, but we needed to determine how. We had so much wind domain knowledge and needed to figure out how to make the transition. 
we had opportunities from our network uh, online. There was conferences, uh, but we were really fortunate enough to work with some of our customers. Uh, they were dabbling in solar and some were going in head first. So we worked with them initially to pilot, to workshop some ideas. And the way that we did that came out of introspection. Again, what do we do best? What do our customers need? And what we determined was it was the same answer. We needed one system, but instead of it being one platform or one system having the life cycle of wind, it needed to be one system for renewables and, and, and a place where we can combine all the data and solve all the problems. So this being our fundamental, but now we needed to make it a bit more flexible, a bit more scalable and agnostic. The, the software does project management. We do risk management. We do data and reporting. There's stakeholder relationships. And this in itself can be flexible. And, and thus, we, we took this as the opportunity to make the platform about renewables, regardless of wind or solar. And, and then we've kept going. And, and now we support battery. There's even hydro in there as well. Yeah. And it occurs to me that the gateway for you has been this aspect of risk management. One of the things that surprised me was how deep of a knowledge base your team, which predominantly is developing software, really has in understanding the trouble, the struggles that your customer, the developer, are facing. Help me understand this human interface aspect of your business, like you know, exactly as you mentioned before, uh, before we started recording, that you have people reading documents, extracting core concepts. Help me understand how that has helped you grow the piece of the business that you just mentioned is kind of your hedgehog concept. Yeah, we are a technology company, but but essentially we're a service provider. Um, and to be successful, we needed to develop a really deep understanding, a, a domain expertise. And having tools, or that's cool, but delivering a tool that's custom to our end user and delivering it with the data that they need, that was important. There is no one-size-fits-all solution. And as an organization, we differentiate ourselves by effectively partnering with our customers to understand their problems and then delivering the solution to meet those. Our customers are developers, they're operators, they're owners, but they, they don't do software. They, they don't work in technology. So within the context of risk, yes, we've got a comp tool and it, it does a lot. It understands obligations. It puts in a schedule and, and, and this, is, this is a really good tool. But our customers also need the data to understand the risk. So we built a team for this. It consists of legal, tax, and data professionals that live in the critical agreements that define a facility on a, on a daily basis. What we do is different than your typical legal services. We're focused on how to translate these agreements into something actionable. Um, what needs to be done, when it needs to be done, who are the recipients, and, and really who's internally accountable. Do you see a rising, uh, and, and how are you guys thinking about this, a rising uh, opportunity there for machine learning and AI as you can apply the knowledge base that you've gleaned? It's close, but it's it's not here yet. Every year we try. We take some time out of our production schedule and we try and assemble the solutions. But at this point, the, the robots haven't arrived yet to replace us. It's, uh, it's close, though. Um, I, I think there's a, a difference in the depth of understanding and being able to translate the subjectivity in, in order to translate or abstract an agreement into actionable tasks. That said... 
AI has definitely impacted uh, the tools that we use internally to perform this function. Yeah, one of the things that uh, you know is very present for us all in in a world in 2020 where we're having international conflict uh, with Iran, who are more crafty at uh, cyber penetration than actual you know armed warfare. It's one of the things that we have to think about with regards to our energy transition and our energy infrastructure broadly. How are you seeing the topic of cybersecurity come up within your software and your customer interactions? There's a quote that keeps going through my head when I think about cybersecurity. It's a quote that's changed over the years. Uh, so I'll, uh, I'll walk you through it. There are two types of companies, those that have been compromised and those that will. And then it morphed a little bit into uh, there are two types of companies, those that have been compromised and those that don't know they've been compromised. And then the, the final evolution of it is there are two types of companies, those that have been compromised and those that will again. This is a call to arms to all of us. This is dangerous. Um, and the grid is a prime target. It needs attention from the sea level down. Everybody needs to pay attention to this. Over the years, we've seen a ton of improvements. From the first project we worked on to facilities that we're seeing commissioned today, there's been a lot of development, but we'll never be done. The challenges that we face continue to scale. What I find most terrifying about this is that the bad guys, they need to be successful once, while the the good guys have to get it right all the time. Security and standards, they typically only go in one direction, and it's getting tighter. And there's been a lot of growth in, in operations, but we need equal attention paid to design and even the physical and, and personal vectors. There's, there's a, lot of, uh, a lot of room to grow and there's a lot of vulnerability out there. It's everybody's responsibility to secure the grid. Appreciate that perspective. Well, you've been around software for a long time and been implementing important pieces of, uh, of software for renewable companies Given what you know about the changes that we've seen over the last 10 plus years, is there anything that you might say is not going to change about the the business that we're in? I believe there's so much great tech to come. We talked a moment ago about AI and ML and the prospects are real and the results will be substantial. But the the things that won't change uh, are the needs for appropriate infrastructure. That's at all stages, uh, development, construction, operations. And the, the, the thing is, we need to grab data. We need to harness it consistently. We need to store it securely. We need to figure out ways of measuring it, how to scale it, how to position it right for users. There's a lot of exciting buzzwords and there's a lot of potential as well. But these fundamentals, collecting, scaling, analyzing, they're going to remain owners effectively being able to respond to those challenges, that's what's going to enable them to take the next step and to get onto the next great technology. Brilliantly enunciated and certainly something that, as I'm learning more about what you guys have developed, uh, seems that the operating system for renewables that uh, Green IT has been working on for a decade plus is, uh, is capable of helping these decision makers make those decisions. I asked a little earlier, but I'll ask this more directly here in our lessons learned section. What are some key lessons or takeaways from some of the most important mentors in your life or career? My biggest lesson is to keep pushing, uh, develop a system for measuring success and allow yourself a moment here or there to enjoy it, but stay hungry. 
work hard and, and keep pushing despite challenges that get in your way and be resolved that uh, you're going to get there. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a dichotomy in the stick with itness and the and the grind uh, of entrepreneurs. Seth Godin, I don't know exactly the quote, but he basically says that uh, there's a time when you need to keep digging and there's a time to know when to stop digging. Have you found for yourself certain ways to trigger or uh, reflect and understand when it's time to stop digging? Personally, and as an organization, we're, we're comfortable with failure. Um, you need to be able to measure any activity, and it's, uh, it's important to do it up front and just be okay with calling it a loss. Uh, learn from it. Uh, go back to the drawing board, then, then keep pushing. Failing fast has been important to us. Uh, it's definitely an engineering principle, but also permeates the rest of the business. It's uh, how we think about resources, how we, how we work on commercial activities. Uh, we're, we're always trying new processes, evaluating, trying to grow. I wonder what opportunities have come your way that, as you reflect back, you're glad you turned it down. You're glad you walked away from. We're good at data and workflow and UI and reporting. And a lot of what we do can be considered industry agnostic. A couple opportunities uh, from conventional energy have come our way. And we've been presented with challenges that, that would be a good fit for our tech, but we determined to pass. And we, we've stayed course. And it's not just because we know our domain best, but because it doesn't fit our mission. We're true believers. We, we drink our Kool-Aid. It's um, personally and also as an organization, we want to do our part to support the clean energy revolution, uh, to support renewables. Uh, but we know who we are and working in this industry is really important to us. So rejecting opportunities that are not tied to the environmental goals and uh, and particular climate change and clean energy business that you've been invested in. That's uh, uh, that is a prudent answer for sure. As someone who's a layperson in this regard, by no means a mathematician or a data scientist or a software engineer, what advice might you give me around uh, and by me proxy as uh, those entrepreneurs out there who are also listening that re- that uh, resemble that remark? How might I think about addressing, evaluating, analyzing, taking action on the vast quantities of data represented in just about any business I am operating today? Are there uh, more pedestrian methods that you feel like people uh, don't realize they have at their at their hands? Um, software maybe you'd recommend or or different approach, framework? That's a great question. And honestly, you don't need much more than a standard spreadsheet. Google and Microsoft offer powerful products that allow lay users the ability to articulate complex thoughts with data. These products are easy to use and and ubiquitous and are always there in our development process. Whether our customers have a sketch or perhaps we're we're delivering data output from our software through these generic tools, they're they're super useful. Despite it being 2020, uh, we still see some access DBs out there. It's it's pretty wild, uh, but we have one customer that finds it easiest to submit their requirements to us via access. It's 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 wild. But beyond that, as an organization, we're committed to the AWS platform and have enjoyed their their development of a tool set that's provided us so many enhancements uh, to computational CPU, elastic resources, and even with uh, ML. There's so much power on AWS and even Azure platforms that um, uh, I definitely want to recommend all of your technical listeners to uh, to explore their potential. But for everybody else with a laptop and a spreadsheet and, and the fundamentals of just 
plainly collecting data and cleaning the data and establishing clear objectives, transforming the data and, and focusing on presenting the results, it doesn't matter the tool. If it's a pen and paper, if it's a spreadsheet, or if you're just if you're using a cluster of, uh, of computers, regardless, the essentials are always going to be the same. Yeah, I appreciate that. I um, at times have uh, failed to implement uh, free software like Tableau and uh, to parse data and really try to understand what's represented in vast quantities of information presented to me. So good old spreadsheet is often uh, the right place to start. And I think maybe for for myself, the world of Upwork and Fiverr and other gig economies has certainly opened up, opened the door for those of us non-mathematicians, non-software folks to uh, be able to outsource in some way the aggregation or the or rather the parsing of of that data. Well, as we look at uh, sort of turning third base here and heading for home, I'm curious, what corners are you guys looking around? You've got 15 plus years in the business of helping run these assets and and think through risk mitigation. What's got you most excited right now about the industry and and the direction it's taking? The fundamentals that we've been preaching, we're not alone. CyberSec is front and center in the national conversation. And, and this is a really good thing. Uh, regarding other trends, we see an awakening in the industry, uh, a big interest in data, and it's not just operational data. We're seeing owners want to understand their process, want to understand development, want to see what went right and what went wrong and how to learn from that. We find that really inspiring. On the product front, we're not done. This journey is continuing. There's still a lot more that we can automate. There's still a lot of opportunities for us to save users time and and help them uh, reduce the clicks that it takes for them to get to real analysis. Yeah, it seems to me like you know a certain level, green IT looks a lot more like Salesforce, right? You kind of run instead of running your business with this tool, you kind of run it through this tool. Uh, as you mentioned, developers are often overlooking. Uh, elements of the development process, not just the asset management process. So if I'm a developer trying to leverage the the data that's at hand, what might I be overlooking and what should I be extracting or perhaps injecting, as it were, into the process to be able to do this better? Tools are good, but we need an emphasis on process and controls. Spinning up functionality is cool, but let's implement systems that are self-sustaining and, and that enforce controls that are important to an organization. Well, I wonder, uh, you know, as you get into fatherhood, habits and consistent practice becomes important. What habit or consistent practice do you feel has given the greatest uh, focus or impact on your own life and work? I'm committed to to learning. And as a technologist and somebody who likes to solve problems, I need to I need to just keep feeding knowledge. I'll get good at solving a problem and then that becomes inspiration to try and solve it differently, uh, more effectively. Beyond that, there's more to life than work, and it's important to attend to your own mind and body. I I need to take time and space to breathe. Uh, You need to leave time for a physical practice. I like to run, and I need the gym time, and actually playing basketball, it helps me clear my head. Creativity requires all this. It requires taking a step back, catch your breath, and this is a fundamental for finding new ways to solve problems. It's stressful. This job is very stressful and you need to take breaks and step away from the keyboard and get away from your phone and and reset. It's essential. Yeah. Those who stick around for the outro of the show often hear me say to the rest of the Suncast tribe, uh, my fellow Philomath, and uh, that is obviously a lover of learning 
I hear that in the way that I see you approaching and growing your business and really appreciate that reflection on the commitment to learning and being an infinite learner. And I, uh, like you and many other guests on the show, uh, feel that if I go more than a couple of days without exercise, I just don't think well. (laughs) So I appreciate that. Well, Andrew, uh, we really appreciate your time here. Probably some of my uh, esteemed listeners are going to reach out and want to get to know you better. How would they find you, learn more about you, what is the most appropriate place to seek you out? You can check us out on our website. It's uh, greenitea.com. That's uh, EA for Energy Applications. Uh, we're on LinkedIn. If you Google, you'll, you'll find us. And uh, we're open. We're accessible. Um, let's talk. Yeah, fantastic. It has been. Uh, it's been one of those longer conversations that fuel my own search for how to, how to do this entrepreneur thing right. And uh, let's end today with what we call the bold prediction. What one thing, Andrew, do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? There's going to be a continued emphasis on asset management. Um, so much has become installed and uh, these, these facilities are going to age. Uh, they're going to hit their stride and, and, then, and, then, and then some. And the emphasis on AM and a scaled version of AM, a much broader definition of what's important for, for stewardship, um, I, I see that as becoming really important for the industry. Andrew Eisenberg is founder and CEO of Green IT Energy Applications, serving from Philly those that are themselves growing the renewable energy business, not just in the U.S., but abroad and increasingly internationally. Andrew, it's been a pleasure to glean these insights from you today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Nico. It's been great speaking with you. All right, Solar Warrior, that's a wrap on today's episode. If you're eager to keep learning, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion along with the social media links, book recommendations, and more that Andrew and all other guests provide at mysuncast.com. You can click on the blog and take a listen to other episodes. That's also where you can sign up for our Suncast Tribe, which is the only way you'll get the details for our upcoming events, like the Ask Me Anything we're hosting very soon with Jeff Ressler, CEO of Clean Power Research, makers of PowerClerk software. And he's a guest as well, back in episode 221 of Suncast. I hope that you'll tune in next week as I have my friend Joe Tassone from Above Grid joining. See, Joe built a huge business in telecom. It turns out solar development has a lot of similarities. And I get Joe to share all his secrets with us. You won't want to miss it. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>